Bienvenidos, señoras y señores, to episode 5 of La Yumacuana. Today's talk will be based on the yacht named Granma, which was used to transport Fidel and his rebel fighters from Mexico to Cuba in November of 1956. Their mission? To overthrow Fulencio Batista. In the previous episode, we talked about the attack on the Moncada barracks, after which Fidel and the surviving rebels were incarcerated and later released under a general amnesty. Soon after, Fidel and his younger brother, Raul, headed to Mexico to reconstruct the revolution. Let's do this thing. So, the conventional wisdom about the revolution is a few hundred bearded rebels and peasant farmers in the mountains somehow single-handedly defeated a standing military of 20 to 40,000 men. I too was under the same misconception. However, it wasn't a guerrilla struggle alone. Fidel was not by any means the lead opposition figure at the time. There were many pseudo-revolutionary groups that were vying for that same role, as well as competing for resources such as recruits, money, and most of all, weapons. In reality, there were two facets of the Cuban Revolution, the one in the mountains and the other that was being fought in the cities, specifically Havana and Santiago. The latter was much bloodier and much more dangerous. It is precisely in these towns where the underground organizations debated and where their planned actions were implemented. Thus, they naturally bore the brunt of the repression. While in Mexico, Fidel summoned two well-known revolutionary leaders, Jose Antonio Echevarria and Frank Pais. Very few people are aware of a group called El Directorio Revolucionario, or DR, and how close it came to killing Batista in March of 1957, which would have changed the whole landscape of history. Echevarria founded the DR and was the most unlikely revolutionary leader. He studied architecture and was elected student body president at the University of Havana. He was a talented orator and organizer. When I would listen to his recorded speeches, he spoke with such vehemence that it would transcend the mere sense of hearing. You could feel his voice resonate from within. He had met Castro twice in Mexico in 1956 to examine ways in which the Directorio might cooperate with the July 26 movement. But these two men had very different ideologies and did not see eye to eye. Castro's dislike of Echevarria was reinforced when he refused to support the Granma landing. The DR had schemes of their own. So they settled on an ally pact instead. Fidel also conscripted Frank Pais, who was from Santiago, and another unlikely revolutionary leader. He was known as the teacher. And even though there were hundreds of teachers in Santiago, when someone said the teacher, it was understood that they were talking about Frank. He was literally a Sunday school teacher he would set up these mock democratic schools of republic in his classroom. Students would be able to elect their president, justice minister, public health minister. And the whole point was that so students could grasp the concept of justice and democracy. The love that he felt for Cuba forced compromises that went against his religious principles. In his position as a leader of the underground movement in Santiago, sometimes people had to be murdered. His mother would gently remind him of the sixth commandment which basically forbids the unjustified taking of a human life. He seemed to agree with his mom. However, at the same time, he understood that they were fighting evil and he tried to justify this in his heart of hearts. It was agreed that Frank would merge his group under Fidel's 26th of July movement or shorthand M267. 
Frank was given the position of National Chief of Action, and they formulated the plan that Fidel's landing in Cuba on the Granma would coincide with a dangerous and violent uprising in Santiago, which would be led by Frank under the M267 banner. Over the next few years, the most predominant revolutionary groups would struggle, not only against Batista, but with each other as well. The group that was left standing would in turn have the honor to direct the revolution once Batista was out of power. This was a chance for Cuba to start anew. Without the ruling of the Spanish or the British and without U.S. intervention, this would be a domestic emancipation. As a man conscious of historical parallels, Castro was aware that José Martí had landed by boat in eastern Cuba 61 years earlier to spark the revolution against the Spanish for Cuban independence in the 19th century. The yacht, affectionately named Granma, short for grandmother, was purchased from an American in October of 1956 for 15,000 U.S. dollars. This was not Fidel's first choice, however, it was all that they could afford at the time. The 60-foot cabin cruiser was built in 1943 and designed to accommodate 12 people with a capacity of 20 to 25 max. Shortly after midnight on the 25th of November, 1956, 82 members of the 26th of July movement boarded the yacht. Be very, very quiet. I'm sparking a revolution. <laughs> Although seaworthy, the ship was not in sea trip ready condition. It had badly worn gears, which prevented it from achieving significant speed, and the radio could only receive, not transmit, thus making it impossible to communicate with allies in Cuba. The craft was overcrowded with weapons, ammunition, and not to mention soldiers. The ship's tanks held around 1,200 gallons of fuel, which was not nearly enough to reach Cuba. So an additional 2,000 gallons in cans were stored on deck, making the 1,200-mile sea voyage utterly miserable. The food had to be rationed. There was no room for anyone to rest. Everyone was literally crouched on top of one another. The engines required constant attention. As they passed Yucatan, it began taking on water, and the men had to bail until the bilge pumps were repaired. For a while, it looked as though the boat was about to sink. The seas were rough, and many of the men were seasick that weren't even prone to it. Imagine being on a vessel without enough food to eat or enough water to drink and nowhere to rest your head, and everyone around you is regurgitating. Jose, echate pa allá, chico. Jose, put yourself downwind. And this wasn't just a one-day excursion. This ended up being a week. There was nowhere for these men to escape. Then a man fell overboard. Maybe he just jumped due to the intolerable conditions, but they spent time and fuel, neither of which they could afford, looking for him. Everyone started screaming the guy's name, Willie, Willie. Fidel insisted, De aquí no lo vamos hasta encontrar a Willie. We are not moving until we find Willie. This demonstration of loyalty aroused the fighting spirit within the men. It instilled a sense of security that no one would be abandoned under Fidel's command, including Willie, who was rescued. It was estimated that the trip would take five days, and so they were scheduled to arrive on the 30th of November to join the internal uprising. However, after a series of vicissitudes, including diminishing supplies, seasickness, and the boat leaking, they ended up not disembarking until the 2nd of December. Two days too late, two dollars too short. In addition, they missed their intended landing spot by about 15 miles. And the new landing area was more of a swamp, 
and the rebels were unable to unload most of their weapons due to the muddy waters. To make matters worse, they were quickly spotted by Batista's army, who retaliated with brute force. Most of the rebels were slaughtered. The others evaded Batista's army by regrouping deep inside the 200 miles of jungle called the Sierra Maestra Mountains. Fidel was reported as dead, but really, he was just chilling in a sugarcane field for like three days. Batista wasn't concerned, saying no one survives the Sierra Maestra. And had it not been for the help of the rural families around the Sierra Maestra, indeed, the remaining rebels would not have been able to survive. Imagine, they had gone days without food or water and still recovering from seasickness. Not only did their headcount increase by recruiting the rural people, both men and women alike would join the struggle, but they were brought back to health through their generosity. Later on, when Fidel was in power and people were revolting against him, it was alleged that he killed all of the farm animals and evacuated rural people to eliminate any resources for his adversaries. The November 30th planned uprise was solid. However, it was missing the element of constant communication in order to support the logistics. Those who survived, including Frank, had to go deeper into hiding. Celia Sanchez, one of Fidel's closest friends and most loyal assistants in Santiago, worked with Frank Baez to build a reliable supply of food, clean uniforms, vaccinations, backpacks, and weapons to Castro and the rebel army. Three months later, Herbert Matthews, a well-seasoned U.S. reporter for the New York Times, goes to visit the rebel army in the Sierra Maestra. It was said that Matthews became absolutely smitten by Fidel. Here was this young, six-foot, burly, Robin Hood type of guy with an assault rifle trying to overthrow this evil dictator, fighting against great odds. The press was 200% with Fidel. Matthews became determined to put a lie to Batista's statement that Fidel was dead and published the article entitled, Cuban Rebel is Visited in Hideout. Video had also been taken and the rebels would congregate together and have the same dudes walk circles around the group in and out of the camera shot to give the cinematic illusion that they were greater in numbers than what they really were. During an interview, Fidel starts trash talking and says, I'm going to tell you what happened. Batista does not want to admit he is incapable of defeating us. Which is bull caca. This, however, gave Fidel one leg up on his rivals, having such command of the American newspapers. This exposure imprinted his face into the minds of people as the leader instead of the constitute that he really was being one part of the greater whole, and a dormant one at that. The M26-7 movement dominated the front page of the New York Times for two consecutive weeks. The rebels in the Sierra were people who could be interviewed out in the open, versus in the cities which would require a secret coded message and then waiting in some dark apartment. These soldiers were out in sunlight with the romantic setting of the jungle in the background. Che was quoted as saying, the presence of foreign journalists was more important to us than a military victory. Because Fidel was gaining so much popularity in the press, the DR came up with an idea even more dramatic than Castro's 1953 attack on the Moncada barracks. They would storm the presidential palace and kill Batista. Their objective was to decapitate the regime and then rebuild under fair elections. At least so far as killing Batista was concerned, the plan almost worked. Close, but no Cohiba. On the afternoon of the 13th in March, two groups of heavily armed gunmen jumped from automobiles and fired point blank at the soldiers guarding the palace. They burst into the building, raced upstairs, and entered Batista's second floor office. Unfortunately for them, Batista had left it about a half an hour earlier. He had taken the elevator upstairs to his living quarters. 
From the roof, the guards started to riddle the interior patio and the adjacent street with machine gun fire, and the attackers began to withdraw. A few escaped, but most were killed inside the palace. Echevarria had taken over a local radio station and prematurely announced the death of Batista and called for an internal uprising. Unbeknownst to him, the mic was not hot and his words were not heard. As Echevarria was driving towards the sanctuary of the university, he collided with a police patrol car. There was a shootout and he was killed almost instantly. The DR had lost their leader. A more long-term consequence to this was one of the most formidable rivals to Castro for the leadership of the revolution was now eliminated. Had the attack succeeded, it would have left Fidel Castro in the mountains as a suddenly irrelevant factor in the revolutionary equation. As a side note, the presidential palace was converted into the Museum of Revolution, and you could still see the bullet holes in the marble walls from this incident as you go up the stairs. So in the safety of the distant Sierra Maestra, by remaining quiescent, Fidel risked little and through media exposure had gained the authority of the revolution. In Santiago, Fidel did not have the following that Frank did. At this point, being the nominal head of the movement, Frank could have constructed his own independent column, but instead he subordinated himself into a supportive role and sacrificed for the good of the cause. Any funds or new recruits that Frank would secure would be given to Fidel. So, still in hiding, Frank would move between safe houses about every four to five days. And then one day, the police were going house to house looking for him. Perhaps having become desensitized to the danger, he told his men to go ahead and he would catch up. When he started walking up the street towards the car that was waiting for him, one of Batista's people recognized Frank. They had gone to teacher school together. He was pushed into the street and murdered at the age of 22 the city became virtually paralyzed for the funeral. There was an enormous procession. This wasn't just an anonymous death of another insurgent. Frank was the symbol of bravery and the glue that held the resistance together. People that had never met before were crying and embracing in the streets. It was emotional to see that magnitude of a reaction from the masses. There was mourning that was soon followed by protesting. And coincidentally, the U.S. ambassador at the time, Earl Smith, was on his first official visit to Cuba. When he witnessed that group of women that were protesting being hosed down while others were being beaten, he was aghast. The effort to contain the rebellion ended up exposing the regime for what it really was. And ironically, this assisted in Fidel's rising. The United States felt embarrassed by Batista's brutality and suspended military assistance. The Cuban army started to collapse from within. Demoralized by public view, Batista's army no longer saw a value to continue fighting for this unpopular regime. By December of 1958, when Che, together with members of the DR and other revolutionary groups, attacked Batista's army in Santa Clara, they surrendered without much resistance. After two years in the mountains, Castro was on the verge of victory. Then in that same month, on New Year's Eve, Batista fled Cuba. People began rejoicing. Ya sacao! It's over! Cars were honking. This became the opportune moment for the last one standing. Fidel Castro, unlike his two worthy opponents, had survived. On the 2nd of January, Fidel would make his first speech at the dawn of the revolution from a balcony in Santiago. The revolution begins now, he announced. 
This time, it will not be like 1898, when North Americans came and made themselves masters of our country. This time, fortunately, the revolution will truly come to power. End quote. He would travel one week across the island on a 600-mile victory parade from Santiago to meet with the units that he had securing Havana. Fidel's efforts had finally come to fruition. However, this leaves the mind to wonder, what would have become of Cuba had Frank or Jose Antonio survived? It's kind of like, how many licks does it take to get to the central center of a Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. This concludes episode five, The Gramma. This was eye-opening for me, and I trust that you enjoyed it as well. Until next time, take care. Cuídate. Ciao.